This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. All right, let's pray as we begin. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your church. We thank you, Father, that you are knitting us together as a body and that you're, you have given us your Holy Spirit to guide us, to direct us, to instruct us. Father, you have given us so many good things, and we are so very grateful. Father, now as we spend some time together talking about fellowship in the church, we pray that you would strengthen me for my preaching, and that our hearts would be tender and our consciences would be tender before you, and that your word would go forth with power as you've promised, Father. We ask all this, Father, in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, I'm very happy to see you all here, including my dear wife. <laughs> um, I, when I learned about the fact that we were doing this conference about a year ago now, I was very excited. Uh, this is a topic that uh, is very dear to my heart, and so I'm excited that we're putting it on. I'm excited that, we, that I have an opportunity to, to be a part of it and to speak today. Um, I a little bit of background about myself. Many of you know it. Most of you do, probably. I'm a missionary kid. I grew up in West and Central Africa. And <clears throat> my family went to church regularly, of course. Uh, but, and it was always something that was important in my family, but I don't think that I really understood the importance of church until later in life. I think there are a number of reasons for this. One of them, I think, is simply that I moved around a fair, fair bit when I was growing up. And I think that, that moving, you know, leaving a community and having to put down new roots um, uh, made it difficult to see the importance of a, a local body of believers. And when I'm speaking about the church, I, I almost always am actually speaking about a local particular body of believers. Uh, we'll get to that idea in here in a minute. But, so I think that's one of the reasons that I didn't understand the importance of the church. I think another reason, uh, uh, and I think Pastor Bailey talked about this last night, is that I, my family is just a you know, regular evangelical family. Um, and I think it's very clear that American evangelicals in this country have a very shallow understanding of the church. Um, I think that in both cases, my experience is actually probably the norm. I think we're a very transient culture at this point. We move around quite a lot. And we have a very low view of the church. And this is true even of, like my family, Christians who are Bible-believing, you know, believe in the gospel, believe in the atonement. Uh, these are evangelicals, right? The, the list of, of things that evangelicals believed in from the very beginning of, of the 1900s uh, is what my family held dear and what I was brought up in. Um, and yet, I don't think that I understood the church very well. Now, if you're uh, eager to contend my point that, or my, my conviction that we are not uh, 
or that even the most committed Christians have a low view of the church, I think one test of that is to see how we expect our churches to interact in the public sphere. So, for instance, do you have any expectation at all, or do even evangelical conservative Christians have any expectation at all that their pastors or their elders might speak with any kind of authority on matters of public debate, public discourse? You know, in the great conversation that we're having here in this country, do pastors or elders, by virtue of their role in the church, have anything to say, have anything to add? The truth is uh, that today it's expected that they don't. And in fact, we've labeled just about every public discourse as a political thing and thereby off limits to pastors and elders and people who are uh, moved in their convictions by explicitly religious reasons. Uh, another, another test um, to see if we, uh, how we view the church, what kind of significance we, ha- we, we believe the church has, is to come at it a slightly different way. <clears throat> Our Reformed Fathers in the Faith taught that there are at least that there are three spheres of authority in the world. We've got the state, the family, and the church. Now the authority of the state is a given, right? It's only the anarchists who want to blow up things that believe that the state doesn't have authority. But everywhere else, even among or perhaps especially among conservative Christians, it's held that the state has authority, and that's proper and good. Um, the, the authority of the family is under attack, certainly, but I would say that even, even um, liberals right, would believe, give lip service to the authority of the family. Um, it's, and certainly, the authority of the family is a cherished doctrine of political conservatives, right? People who uh, believe in family values. That's a phrase that's used all over the place. And so the authority of the family, to some extent, is still believed in. But the authority of the church? It's a joke, right? To ask the question is to answer it. At best, what a pastor has to say is considered irrelevant in our day of feminism and modern science and technology. Um, And uh, so as the broader culture has dismissed the church as irrelevant and as the broader culture has become increasingly hostile (coughs) to orthodox Christianity, the evangelical church has increasingly sought to find a safe place to stand. If you've ever read, uh, and I highly recommend the book Evangelicalism Divided, it's by Ian Murray. We might be selling it out there. Are we, are we selling it? Do you know? It's not on the book table. Okay, well, it's very, very valuable, very good book by Ian Murray, Evangelicalism Divided. Take a, give it a read. Um, he very cogently details how evangelicals are basically sp- splitting between those who are looking for what I might call a demilitarized zone and want to stand in some kind of safe zone between the pressures of the culture and orthodox true faith and those who are desiring to remain faithful, right? Now, as this pressure is applied from the culture to the evangelical church, 
there are certain things that evangelicals have simply abandoned and other things that we're very defensive about. Let me give you some, some kinds of examples. Um, in general, any kind of church infrastructure, so, and by that I would mean denominations, bylaws, um, uh, faith statements, uh, are, are derided as stuffy and out of touch, right? Anytime you try to define very clearly what you believe and then try to publish that to the world um, in order to say we're this and not that, it's, it's seen as a battle over doctrinal matters and it's seen as a, as a waste of time. Like it's, it's got little importance that you're simply wasting time and you're just uh, enjoying debate for the, for the sake of debate. <clears throat> but if you look at the, the breakout sessions for this conference, and I don't have a brochure, but I, um, if, you just, if you look through them, uh, you'll see you'll see a list of the topics that we think are important enough to warrant an entire session. <clears throat> uh, as, as you go down the list of these breakout sessions, I can point out to you how the modern evangelical church has completely removed that particular thing from the domain of the church at all. So, for instance, baptism and membership. Right? I remember, this is just my personal testimony, I remember growing up and realizing in high school, aren't I supposed to be baptized? Like, isn't, isn't this something I'm supposed to do? And I think I went to my dad, and then I, you know, and of course he was happy for me to be baptized, but it was, um, I just don't ever remember having a conversation with him about it. And so I went to my, my youth leader at the time. I was in a sort of a mega church-style church. Um, and he's like, yeah, that's great, you know? Um, but my point in, in giving you that, that testimony is that it was very clear that baptism wasn't all that important, you know, or, you know, my father and this youth leader probably would, would take umbrage at me saying that it's not important. It's not that they didn't think it was important, but important, but that it was, um, it, well, I guess I'll have to leave it at that. It's not, not that important. It wasn't central. Right? The main thing was that I had already joined the spiritual church right? because of my confession of faith. I had, I had prayed the prayer, and so I had joined the spiritual church, the universal church already. And so this joining of a particular body of believers by virtue of a baptism into a particular body was just not that important. Um, we're convinced that someone who is baptized is not simply joined to the church universal. So, in contrast to that, here today, what we're in our teaching, we're convinced that uh, from Scripture that someone who is baptized is not simply joined to the church universal, but also to a particular body of believers in time and space. And of course, that has everything to do with membership. And so, it has almost nothing to do with. Uh, with the, what churches today say is, is their responsibility. Churches today, uh, membership is very loosey-goosey. It's um, uh, not exclusive in any way, if that makes sense. 
So baptism and membership. Another, another topic that we're talking about today is authority, right? And as I've mentioned already, uh, we simply, we don't believe in authority in general, um, and least of all the church. Uh, it's the view of the average Christian in this country, I'm convinced, that, that the church, for, for the average Christian, the church, the church he attends, the, the pastor of the church he attends has about as much authority in his life as Dr. Phil or Oprah, right? Something you can sort of turn on at some point during the week and maybe get a few helpful things and then turn off whenever you're, you're done. <clears throat> Another significant topic that's central to the identity of the Church of Jesus Christ that we've completely abandoned is the Lord's Supper. You know, in, in a similar way to the, to the way that baptism is treated, uh, in many evangelical churches you go to today, the, the Lord's Supper is still practiced as kind of a memorial, like it's sort of sentimental, but the cup and the plate, I, I remember going to one church in particular, where it's like there was no announcement, it just sort of appeared there, and then it was gone, and it was like nobody said anything about it. It was just, it was just there and gone. Um, and, and, and so, is it any wonder that there's no understanding that the, the Lord's Supper has everything to do with membership in Christ's body and, and actively showing the distinction between those who are a part of the, the family of God and those who are not? If the Lord's Supper just appears in front of you without any explanation, obviously you're not going to understand that. So as we, as we continue down the list, we'll, we'll see that this is true all the way down, right? Preaching to the conscience is out. Liturgy that isn't simply a historical relic, but is meant to stir us up and draw us to worship the one triune God is, is out. Discipline that is painful is completely out, right? You're a monster in a church if you think that discipline is, still has a place. These things have no place in the modern church. <clears throat> Now, um, you've all come to a talk on fellowship, and so you're probably wondering, what in the world does this all have to do with the topic of fellowship? Well, the reason I've labored over all of these things that the church doesn't think is, is they're supposed to do anymore is that fellowship is curiously one of the very few things that the church is supposed to do, right? And if that's true, I want you to smell a rat. I want you to be suspicious of yourself and suspicious of what's going on here. Fellowship stands curiously apart from these other topics. It's absolutely central to the life and purpose of the church, and yet we're strangely still committed to it. <laughs> right? How could that be? Or at least we think we're committed to it. <clears throat> In our decadent age, fellowship is one of the last reasons for the church to exist. And so if you talk to an evangelical, um, if there's one thing that's positive that they can say about the church, it's going to be, well, you should go to church because Scripture commands us to be in fellowship with other believers. Right? This is, this is like the last great reason to go to church. It's like motherhood and apple pie. Who's going to argue with hanging out, having a meal, having coffee with people, you know, watching a game, playing video games together? Who's going to argue with that? So, we need to walk very gingerly as we explore this topic, and we need to keep our eyes open. Because if this happens to be the one place 
in the Church of Jesus Christ that's not under attack, or we think is not under attack, then we need to smell a rat. So, we're going to identify some of our mistaken beliefs about fellowship in just a minute, but I want to start with the positive big picture about fellowship. I like to start with the big picture and then move to the, to the particulars. So, the first thing is that the Church of Jesus Christ is glorious. Now, if there's one thing I want you guys to walk away from it, with this conference, I want you to walk away after the end of this weekend with the conviction that the Church of Jesus Christ is glorious and that it is entitled to your blood, sweat, and tears. It's entitled to your love. It's entitled to your best ability and efforts and straining. The best that you have, I hope you give to the Church of Jesus Christ. I, I pray that this conference is, is strengthening uh, for the expansion of the church both here in Bloomington, Indiana, but throughout the United States and beyond. And Pastor Baker um, last night talked about some of the ways that the church is glorious in his talk. And he, he mentioned Ephesians 5. I'm going to read a couple of verses from it now. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. He's going to present to himself the church in all her glory. So the church is glorious. That's the first thing. Next... I want you to catch a grand vision for sweet Christian fellowship. Fellowship, again, is indeed at the very center of the purpose of the Church of Jesus Christ. And I don't want you to take my suspicion that, that there's a rat somewhere in here as evidence that I think that fellowship isn't all that important or something like that. It is central to the purpose of Jesus, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, who knows the Greek word for fellowship in, in the New Testament? Koinonia, right? This happens to be one of the, one of the you know, it's, uh, as I was thinking about this, koinonia is actually one of the words, Greek words, that a lot of people do know, right? There's lots of churches named koinonia, Bible Center, or koinonia church, or something like that. And again, I take that as evidence that this is a topic that, um, that we like to we talk a lot about, but perhaps don't know very well. Um, but how, how many of you can tell me what it actually means? I mean, it means fellowship, of course, but can you, can you open it up a little bit? Does anybody know? Yeah? The, to talk about Greek that Scripture was written in as opposed to Plato, okay. it's Koine Greek, which is the common Greek, and, yep. and not the kind of artificial intellectual Greek. Very good. That's good. Yeah, that's right. It's got it's all it's got everything to do with sharing in in common, right? Common is the is what he was just mentioning, but that's that's the point of it, right? Our fellowship is sharing in common with believers. Now, how is scripture how does scripture speak of this fellowship? Well, first, it was very clearly one of the the devotions of the early church in Acts 2:42. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Right? This is very central to the to the to the what happened with the early church. 
Um, Stephen last night spoke of the glorious bride of Christ and how all of history will consummate in a wedding feast. And I think it's critical for us to have that vision in mind as we think about fellowship. Because we are headed for an enormous wedding celebration, right? This is where history is headed. Let us rejoice. This is Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made him herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Alright, this is where we're headed. Fellowship. Also, uh, scripture speaks about how we are a building being fitted together. Right? This is from Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in, in the Spirit. We are... In, in 1 Corinthians 12, the, uh, one of the go-to passages for spiritual gifts, which I'll be talking about in my next session, a little advertisement there and get you guys interested in it. Um, it, it, it says that we are, that Christians are to be united and have mutual care for one another, right? So it says, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And last but not least, of course, Scripture teaches very plainly that Christians are to be known by their love for one another. Right? Jesus says to his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that your love, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now all these things sound very positive, right? And that's, that's good. It is a positive, grand vision for uh, what fellowship is all about in the Christian church. So now I want to unpack a little bit about why, why it is then, if... if if those, all those things that I've said are true about fellowship, why is it that fellowship is a demilitarized zone? Why is it that the most Christian, you know, scripture-hating, God-hating people in our country could probably hear those things and feel like they could be on board for most of them? Well, I'm convinced it's a demilitarized zone because we don't know really what Christian fellowship is about. It's about all those things I mentioned, but it's about, it's about more things. Um, and so we have to ask ourselves, when we use the word fellowship, what, what do we mean? What are we saying when we talk about Christian fellowship today? And I'm convinced, or let me, let me ask you that. I want to ask you that as a question. What do you think people generally mean when they, when they mention Christian fellowship or just fellowship? I'm going to pick on you. Oh, oh. What do you think, Alex? Getting together and playing circle games. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Just, you know, just the ability to gather up and just eat and talk about Whatever. stuff. 
Yeah. No related to church. Not necessarily related to church. Yeah. What else? Anything else you would say? Being nice to each other. Yeah, being nice to each other, right? I think that I think that hits. I shouldn't do that. Um, I think that hits the nail on the head, right? Fellowship is about maintaining uh, pleasant, friendly relationships with people in your local church. Um, it's kind of a, a nebulous word that is that can be filled up to mean basically whatever you want it to mean. It can mean playing Xbox 360 or whatever, or playing basketball with your neighbor, friends, or whatever. It's just, it just can be whatever you want it to be. I think a, a good example of this, uh, a, a good, uh, uh, a similar word is the word marriage, right? And we all have this in our minds because of recent events. Um, our Supreme Court recently handed down a decision in, in support of same-sex marriage, right? According to the U.S. Supreme Court, the word marriage can be legitimately applied to a couple of the same sex. The rationale behind this, of course, is that the, actu is that the actual sex of the parties involved in such a relationship is irrelevant. Okay? So there's some objective things about the relationship that are simply irrelevant. Um, their relationship can still be property, properly described as a marriage, according to the court, because what matters is that the couple simply wants to be recognized as married and have some display of commitment to each other. There's nothing objective about the relationship, and uh, opponents of same-sex marriage have properly asked the question, what's next? Right? Uh, marriage between animals and humans, marriage between a man and two women, marriage between a man and five women, marriage between a man and a boy. And I, I was listening to the, to the wonderful radio um, the other day, and I've, there's a, occasionally, there's a, I don't know what, there's a radio station here in Bloomington that's like the most liberal station. It's like something now or I don't know. NPR. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. Um, Anyway, sometimes they're interesting to listen to. So I was listening to them, and uh, somebody on the radio station says, uh, you, know, it, you know, the question was asked, you know, conservatives are bringing up all these questions. Um, what do you say to that? And, and his, his, the way he started his response is, um, well, those are silly because we're talking about marriage. And I just, I turned the radio off at that point because I just couldn't bear it. it was, what he was, he was assuming a definition of marriage when, of course, the whole question is what is the definition of marriage, right? And he just assumes that he knows the definition of marriage. But you can't simply say, um, you know, if someone says, well, should marriage be between animals and humans? You can't simply say, but that's not what marriage is because you can't appeal to the definition of marriage to say those aren't legitimate marriage because the very definition of marriage is what's at issue, right? Um, Christians who are opposed to same-sex marriage are so opposed because God is the one who has defined marriage and he has done so with some objective criteria. While multiple wives has been permitted in the past, the, the original standard for marriage is clear. One man, one woman. In the same way, we've given up on anything objective about the word fellowship. All right? this, is, this is my point about how the word marriage and the word fellowship are similar. Uh, it's what makes it possible for fellowship to be in a, this sort of demilitarized zone. Uh, 
Fellowship today simply means friendly relations with other people. A group of guys watching the Super Bowl or playing video games can describe their time together as fellowship. Two people in a coffee shop chatting over the latest gossip can call their time together fellowship. A potluck after church where the entire church turns up can be called fellowship. All these things can be referred to as fellowship. Um, so, but that's not the way that God has given us this word fellowship. And so I, if you do have your Bibles today, I'd encourage you to open up 1 John chapter 1. We're going we're gonna, to um, look at this chapter to open up the important components of fellowship that actually give some, some teeth, some structure, some objectivity to what this word fellowship is all about. And I, I'll tell you, as I was preparing for this, I'll say I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever really studied 1 John 1, and it was, it was just delightful. So I hope that you're delighted with it along with me. Okay, I'm going to read beginning with first verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write, so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. Now, verses 1 through 3 open up the bedrock of Christian fellowship. Let me, let me read it to you again. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. The first point about fellowship is that the message is foundational. There is no such thing as Christian fellowship that does not have the gospel of Jesus Christ at its center. We proclaim the message so that you too may have fellowship with us. Um, I, I, we talked about this uh, passage a little bit in our small group last week, so I could do a little bit of a test run on my small group. And uh, Becky Pryor brought up that that's exactly the opposite of how fellowship is generally handled today, right? We've got friendship evangelism and seeker-sensitive churches and so forth. And th what's the point of all of those things? Well, the point is to establish a, sort of, a certain amount of fellowship before we even bring up the word of life, right? Before we bring up the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this passage makes it clear they proclaim the message 
so that they may have fellowship. Christian fellowship cannot exist before there is a mutual commitment and belief in the central message. And, you know, that's not to say you shouldn't have non-Christian friends, but I just want you to be careful about what you're referring to as fellowship, right? How can two walk together if they're not in agreement, you know? I can have friends that are, you know, I can be friendly with people that hate the Bible, right? But that doesn't mean I'm in fellowship with them, that I have fellowship with them. So fellowship, Christian fellowship cannot exist before there is a mutual commitment and belief in the central message of Jesus Christ. A common objection to this uh, will be to point out that many churches, in fact, have a commitment to some shared doctrinal standard, some objective set of beliefs, but they are nonetheless dead and lifeless. There's no vitality to them. Uh, There is perhaps a commitment to particular tenets of the faith or a commitment to a particular liturgy, but no real love among the brethren. Now, I I wanted to deal with this objection right away because it assumes a false choice, right? I don't know what's the official word for that fallacy, uh, a term, do you know? It's like a false dichotomy. Yeah, something like that. I don't know. Um, but uh, my, my point is that you don't have to choose between dry, uh, you know, unity around dry doctrines and real, vital uh, relations, love for one another in your church. Um, if, if, I, if you continue the marriage analogy, right, the, the definition of the word marriage, it is true that marriage is between a man and a woman. But we've all seen loveless marriages, right? And nobody wants loveless marriages. We're not advocating loveless marriages. Uh, what we're arguing for is that marriage is between a man and a woman, and that the man and the woman are supposed to love each other, genuinely, from the heart. In the same way, Christian fellowship must be centered around the objective truths about Jesus Christ, and it should be genuine love and concern for one another. Now, it's important to make this point about the church in general. And like I said, I, this is a topic that I love very much. And so I, I, there's lots of things um, that I, I think about as we, as we go on this particular topic. But, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people turn their nose up at the church because of how much it's like a business or an organization, you know. Um, we've got a building here. We have to pay bills. Uh, we have to have people man the grounds and then that's just keeping you know the the operations of this place in business uh, there's also the fact that we've got official offices we've got a pastor and then all, also deacons and elders who have official titles you know it, it it's hierarchical and so forth and and so it's it's very easy for evangelicals to turn their nose up at all that hierarchy and order and say, oh man, I'm just about fellowship, you know, I'm about organic relationships. Uh, but my, my point is, brothers and sisters, these things are not mutually exclusive, right? If somebody, if anyone brings that up to you, just remind them, they're not mutually exclusive. We're supposed to have order, you know, we're supposed to have offices. These are commanded to us. This is commanded to us and laid out for us in Scripture. And so there is supposed to be structure, 
But nobody wants structure that's dead and lifeless. This is not what anybody's arguing for. So, you know, if people trot that out, say, uh, that's not what I'm arguing for. You know, it, it's, it, it makes, it's the logic of Planned Parenthood in my mind. You know, what they always say is every child a wanted child. It just drives me crazy, you know? Every child a wanted child. Well, here's an idea. Let's want the children, you know? It's just so, it's just, ah, drives me crazy, you know? So, so um, in the same way, let's not kill the church, you know? Every church a life-filled church. Let's not kill it off. Let's bring life into it. Let's love it. Let's love each other, right? So our, our, our fellowship is centered on the objective message of the gospel, and that in no way takes away from the warmth and vitality of our fellowship together. Now, the second foundational element that we see here in 1 John um, is that Christian fellowship starts with fellowship with God. Verse 3 says, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Without fellowship with God, we have no fellowship with one another. This is reiterated in verse 7. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Do you see that? If we walk in the light as He Himself in, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Right? If this, then that. It then goes on to say that the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sins. Brothers and sisters, the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ isn't tangential to Christian fellowship. Right? It's absolutely central. And related to this, uh, truth-telling is absolutely central to Christian fellowship. Right? Tim Bailey often speaks of the cosmetics counter at, uh, at a department store to illustrate fake Christian fellowship, right? At a cosmetics counter, you, uh, people go there to cover up themselves, to lie about themselves, right? And to tell people a lie about who they are, what they look like, I guess. Um, and, of course, we learn here that a surefire way to kill genuine Christian fellowship is to lie about yourself. In verse 8 it says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. A Christian church, where fellowship is sincere and vital, will be necessarily a church where there is regular confession of sin and repentance. And if there is not regular confession of sin and repentance for that sin, there will be no vital Christian fellowship. Right? doesn't exist. Because you'll be lying about yourself. And you can't have fellowship where there's lying. It's got to be truth-telling. Third, the apostle here makes it clear that there is no fellowship between light and darkness. Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. 
Now all around us there's pressure to discover finally that there is a way for light and darkness to fellowship, right? This is the pressure of our culture. But brothers and sisters, that pressure doesn't begin out there, right? It begins in our homes, it begins in our marriages, it begins in our churches, it begins in our hearts, right? If you're looking out there and you're frustrated with, you know, homosexual lobbyists or something like that, you're you're barking up the wrong tree. You need to see that the pressure for light and darkness to walk together, to fellowship with one another, to say that they can, is within your own heart. The church today never wants to say no. But there can be no unity, there can be no true fellowship without saying no to ungodliness. That necessarily means that you must make a choice about who you will not fellowship with. Right? Again, um, is it Amos that says, that's the passage that says, uh, how can two men walk together unless they are in agreement? You guys know what I'm talking about? I think it's Amos. I might be wrong. Um, You can't at the end of the day, you have to realize that in your life, you're going to be making decisions about who you fellowship with, right? And you will be making those decisions on all kinds of, on, on, on some basis, whether it's work, whether it's family, whether it's, you know, mutual interests, or whether it's the church of Jesus Christ. Are you fellowshipping around what? What are you fellowshipping around? Faithful Christians are... So you have a choice about who you will and will not fellowship with, and there will be people in your life who will simply need to pass by. Jesus did it constantly. The Apostle Paul did it. Faithful Christians have done it constantly. They move on from those people who refuse to walk in the light. Because our fellowship between our brothers depends on walking in the light as he is in the light. And I'm, what, don't, don't hear me incorrectly here. It's not to say that you... I mean, there's a sense in which you don't give up on people, right? But you have to make a decision that you're not going to fellowship with such and such a person because they're, they've refused to walk in the light as you are in the light. Because you have made the choice to fellowship with God. And... And they've not made that choice. So we have, to, we have to be able to say no. We must be done with the fiction that we can always be in fellowship with everyone. You know, that it's, there, there are particular people in the church who always feel like they're the perfect keepers of relationships with non-Christians, right? They've figured out the perfect way to walk the line between Christian fellowship and their non-Christian friends. And brothers and sisters, I want us to have non-Christian friends. I want us to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to speak about the gospel, to urge people to come into fellowship with us. But we can't do that at the expense of, of lying about light and darkness. Because then we've, we've lost fellowship, right? We've, we've given it up. Finally, our fellowship with God is tied with our fellowship with our brother, right? You remember in, 
In 1 John I said, if we have fellowship with God, then we have fellowship with our brother. Um, a book that I do recommend about fellowship that, that we are selling today is, is Bonhoeffer's Life Together, right? Very, very helpful. There's a quote from it that I'm going to read now. He says, I have community with others, and I shall continue to have it only through Jesus Christ. The more genuine and deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and His work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. We have one another only through Christ, but through Christ we do have one another wholly for eternity. So, our relationship with our brother, the fellowship that we do have, the mutual concern that we have in, in the church for one another, um, is all centered around Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who unites us and is our, our bond, right? And just like Bonhoeffer says, that reality should become increasingly true, not, not less true as we fellowship, you know? If, if it becomes less true, then we're simply a social club, right? We have what will, will inevitably happen is that we'll simply be grouped together because we live in the same geographic location or we look the same or we like the same things or something, right? It'll be something other than Jesus Christ. But it's Christian fellowship has Jesus Christ at its center. Okay, so as we close today, I want to leave you with a couple, a couple specific applications. First, what Christian fellowship is all about, what we have in common, like I just said, is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. This is central. It's the objective truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ that's the cornerstone of our fellowship. And so the first question to you is, are you in fellowship with God? Right? That's the first thing. It's, it, um, in the Reformed pastor, Richard Baxter is writing two pastors, and his first, the way he starts the whole thing is he says, are you a Christian? <laughs> none, none of this rest of this book makes sense unless you're a Christian. And brothers and sisters, that's what I'm saying today. Are you a Christian? Is your hope in Jesus Christ? Have you been baptized, and are you in yoke with a local body of believers? Right? Are you a Christian? Second, um, in Acts, we see a, uh, a very sweet picture of the fellowship that the early church had. Right? It's in Acts 4. It says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as, they, as any had need. My question to you is, what do you have common with the folks sitting around this room? Uh, now, some of you came from long distances, but... And if you did, I want you to imagine your church. So imagine sitting in a room with your church fellow believers. What in the world do you have in common with them? Are you, is there any evidence that you are in yoke with them 
for anything, right? Do you share anything with them? And, you know, in this passage, um, it's, it mentions uh, uh, sharing uh, material goods, right? And absolutely, if we aren't sharing financially with each other, there's a good evidence that we're not actually in fellowship, right? But there's other things that we can share. There's time and energy. And, you know, I haven't brought up um, the list of things that you can do to fellowship with each other. Um, because I think, you know, it's not like there's some sort of limited list. I actually do think that it is possible for Christians to fellowship by watching a basketball game or something. It's ac- it is actually possible to do things that are, or, or have a meal, you know? This is, uh, uh, my point in, in, in bringing those, those examples up earlier wasn't to say that it's impossible for Christians to do that, but that they themselves don't necessarily mean that there's fellowship. But if those things aren't happening, then I ask you, in what sense are you in fellowship with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Uh, the decadence of our nation is an indication that our love has grown so very cold and that we are so very selfish. This isn't a problem for people out there. This is our problem. This is the the problem in the church. Do you have anything, do you have everything in common with your brothers and sisters? Um, so, (laughs) So, do you have anything in common? Now, some of you don't fellowship with God's people. In my my exhortation to you is, brothers and sisters, don't be selfish. You know, we're so very tempted in the church as we live together to complain, to whine, uh, to feel hurt by somebody for doing this or that. And so often the case is that we, um, that we're, that we have complaints, that we bite, or we, we fight, and we argue with each other because we're selfish and we're self-absorbed. And so, brothers and sisters, you should be an instrument of God's mercy for someone else. It's not g- good to simply wait around and, and, and say to the church, Church, I'm going to judge you by whether or not you've taken me in under your wing and fellowshiped with me, right? My prayer is that the church, wherever you're at, will do that. But the call is for you to fellowship with God's people. So don't stand back and judge. You need to jump in. You need to be hospitable in your home. You need to have the time to talk to people. You need to have the, the foresight, the thought, that perhaps so-and-so needs help financially and you, that maybe you can help them. You know, these are things you need to be concerned for your church. It's not the pastor's church, it's your church. All right. I want to also close with um, reminding us of what First John says, right? He, he says, I write so that my joy will be complete. And let me ask you this, is your joy complete? Do, is it your joy? Can you properly say that it's your joy to fellowship with God's people? To be in yoke, to have everything in common, 
with God's people. I do, I think Jake did a good job of titling this talk. He, he is the one that came up with the title. We should delight in our church. It's the church of Jesus Christ. How can you say that you love the church if you don't delight in the church, right? If you ever read John Piper, anything by him, you know this, right? That, that, uh, that you know, you're supposed to delight in the things that you love, right? This is, this is his whole life's message. Well, it's true. Um, you can't say that you love the church if you don't delight in the church. How can you say that you love your wife if you don't delight in your wife? So do you delight in the church? Is it your joy? And then finally, brothers and sisters, um, I just want to leave you with, uh, with this from 1 Peter. Um, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. See to it that we have a sincere love of the brethren, and that we fervently love each other from the heart. Let's pray as we end. Father God, your church is glorious, and we thank you for giving it to us, for allowing us to serve in it, to be a part of it. And Father, we do pray that you would soften our cold hearts, warm them, liven them, enliven them, Father, to, do, to be energetic, to do your work, to do your will. And Father, oh, I pray that you would enlarge our hearts, that we would have love for each other. Father, that we wouldn't be stingy with our love, but that we would grow and grow and grow because of how you have loved us, Father. You are the source of love, Father, and we thank you that uh, we thank you for that, Father. I pray as we go from here that you'd be with us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I didn't really leave time for questions, but if you have them, I don't. I would love to answer them. So go ahead. I have one. In fellowship where you're developing close personal relationships, you, you get to know people's lives, mm-hmm. and you get to know yours. If there is a time and there, there will inevitably be one where your investment in their life and vice versa will require you to issue or correction or rebuke or direction or mm-hmm. or correction, I think more and more these days that's perceived as cultish mm-hmm. because the world recognizes the church and its discipline and its, its uh, God's authority and its delegated authority to the officers and so it's abhorring that and it's using these nasty slurs to cast at the church. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering when you sense the subtext of oh this is this is a cult or this is controlling in the context of fellowship what how do you address that? Um when you you so your question if I can restate it if somebody comes and sees what you have at their at your church um, and they say, whoa, you guys are a cult. How would you respond to them? 
So, yeah, close. But okay. I'm talking about people who are in the church who uh, are coming under discipline, discipline particularly, and realizing I don't like this, mm-hmm. and so it's a cult. Um, well, I think that that the answer to that is actually likely very similar for both instances. Um, someone outside and someone who's been here for a while. And I say that because I think that if they're surprised after being here, excuse me, for a couple of years, then they, they missed it when they got here, you know. In other words, um, in general, I would say that it, it, what Tim says, in the, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, right? Christian fellowship is going to look so weird to the, the culture at large, the intimacy and the accountability that we have for each other and the love that we have for one another um, is going to look so weird when the expectation is that everyone's just going to mind their own business. That's the expectation in the culture. You know, le- let me do my own thing. Um, you know, I, I remember a story that Tim tells of talking to a homosexual man and his response, the man's response to him, or it might, might not have been Tim, Anyway, it was, why don't you just leave me alone? You know, can't you just leave me alone? Can't you leave us alone, speaking of homosexuals? And that's the expectation, right? That, that we'll leave each other alone to our sin. Um, and so the way I would respond to it in the case of uh, someone who's been here for a couple of years is to remind them this is what Christian fellowship is about. You know, it is about holding each other accountable and being intimate with each other so, such that we can speak truth to one another. Um, does that answer your question? Not really. What have I missed? You may have answered it. I, I think that you have to go to Scripture and say, go to the book of Acts, go to the Apostle Paul and his letters to the church and how intimately involved he was in the life of the, of the church members and show this is just biblical mm-hmm. normality. It's not an aberration. So, okay. Uh, you know, you talk about um, the book of Galatians, right? That's a, the whole book is about a conflict that happened in the church that apparently was resolved, you know, because you hear... Um, uh, Peter later talking about uh, you know the good things that Paul does uh, has said um, so that's I think you're right you, you, you can point to particular examples from scripture um, but I think that there are many of them uh, so so I think I'll, I'll leave it at that um, but scripture is, is filled with examples of believers going to each other and speaking truth, right? This is central, central to fellowship. Any other questions before we're done? All right. Well, if you have any more, feel free to come up and afterwards and ask me, but you are dismissed. This has been a production of Clear Note Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others, but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnotefellowship.org.